Welcome to Trace on the Case, the podcast where we talk about unique cases, economic damage claims, financial investigations, and various aspects of white-collar crime. My name is Paul Rodrigues, and I'll be your host. My partner, Deb Temkin, and I have over 60 years of experience between us in doing what we love to do, tracing money and tracing the people. We've seen it all, and in this show, we're going to be taking you below the surface, deep into our world, so you can learn how we work and how we've solved some very complex problems. Because let's face it, the most tricky cases require bringing in the experts. This is Trace on the Case. We have a tremendous episode ahead of us. We are happy you're here, so let's get into it. Hi, this is Paul Rodrigues with another episode of Trace on the Case. This is episode 13 in a continuing series uh, where we're discussing uh, in this current series litigation and specifically IP litigation. So intellectual property litigation. And my guest today again is Brad Juber. Jubber? Brad Jubber. Yeah, thanks, Jubber. Paul. There thanks you for having me back. Yeah, yeah, no problem. So anyways, um, yeah, Brad, so we we uh, we left off uh, last week kind of talking about uh, the different types of uh, patents and intellectual property. And so uh, let's uh, let's pick up where we left off. I think since our last discussion, um, what developments have you seen in IP litigation that, you know, continue to reinforce the idea that all litigation is costly and uncertain? Yeah, thanks for having me back, Paul. When when we finished up our last episode, it really was striking to me how many things happened. Uh, we can't go through all of them, obviously, for time, but um, several several cases came up that uh, were very interesting and kind of touched on the points that we discussed last time. And so uh, kind of before we jump into it, I wanted to start with just following up with some of the points that we were talking about. Yeah, yeah, for Basically, sure. Yeah, yeah. You know, litigation, last time we were talking about patent litigation and how uncertain it is, we talked about a particular case where um, the biscuits uh, and not the uh, the air in the oven were heated to a certain temperature, and so the patent was basically unenforceable. Um, so patents certainly have more uncertainty than other forms of intellectual property, but litigation in any area is, is very costly. Um, if you've seen this trademark litigation, uh, the case is actually called Vidal v. Elster, uh, involving the Trump Too Small case. No, no, I haven't seen that. Um, what does that cover? Yeah, so this case is pitting kind of the freedom of speech rights that this Stephen Elster has versus the Lanham Act. And the Lanham Act is what defines the trademark rights. And so he applied for a trademark called Trump Too Small to sell t-shirts for this upcoming election and basically arguing that the policies of Trump are too small for the problems that the country is facing. And I'm going to try and avoid getting into the politics of all of this. I know they're a little contentious, but um, the trademark issues are fascinating. So um, if you go to the Lanham Act, there's several reasons that a trademark can, can be refused. Uh, those include immoral, deceptive, or scandalous trademarks. As we'll discuss later, there's been a lot of litigation on that recently. 
Um, I found it really interesting when I looked up the statute that um, trademarks can be refused because they have a flag or the coat of arms of the United States or another state. Um, the coat of arms is actually the original source of trademark law. In medieval times, trade of arms were kind of trademarks. Uh, so if, excuse me, coat of arms were trademarks. So you would identify a family by their coat of arms. And there were all these medieval laws about how to change a coat of arms and what needed to be done and who needed to be notified. And, and so that's kind of the source of trademark law. Yeah, I think they kind of used it as like a seal too, didn't they? When they would seal letters that they were sending back and forth. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it was kind of a trademark. It identified which family this letter came from in that case. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, what, um, what, what, uh, what's going on with that case then, the, the Trump too small case? Um, did, uh, who did they side with, I guess? Well, so the, the, the trademark, uh, the trademark office sided with um, Trump. What well, I shouldn't say with Trump, he cited they they basically refused the um, trademark altogether. It's interesting. This is case is very interesting because uh, Trump is actually not involved. He's got a lot of legal issues going on right now, but this isn't one of them. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And um, it's also interesting because the Biden administration actually supports Trump's side on this case. So uh, there's not too many things that the Bidens and the Trumps agree on, but this case might be one of them. Right. Okay. So, um, so which way did it go? I mean, uh, did the, as far as, uh, did they side with, um, I think it was Steve Eister. Um, yeah. Elster. Yeah. Freedom of um, speech or, or what? Uh... So, yeah, it, it kind of gets into what, where we're going to go later today, but there's basically three courts. There's a trial court where the case is first heard. In this case, that's the TTAB or the trademark uh, in the in the patent office, the patent and trademark office, heard the case and refused the registration. You can appeal that case to the federal circuit, and the federal circuit reversed, um, and they reversed the case um, because, kind of like what we were talking about last time, no one was really confused by what the Steve Elster is doing. He wasn't commercially exploiting Trump's name, and um, you know, the Lanham Act doesn't really exist to protect Trump's feelings. And um, the idea was that nobody is commercially exploiting Trump. Everyone knows that the Steve Elster is someone different than Trump. And he's trying to use his freedom of speech to, to promote a product. And the, the Federal Circuit relied heavily on two recent Supreme Court cases, um, the first is this Mittal v. Tam. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but uh, it's commonly referred to as the Slants case. And the second is Yanku v. Brunetti. And I'm not going to say what that case is commonly referred to, but it's an, uh, it, it, st it stands for Friends You Can't Trust. And if you can put that together, you can understand why someone would uh, trademark that, might think that that is scandalous or disparaging. So or excuse, immoral or scandalous. Okay. And, and so um, these two cases both basically held that the, the person trying to get the trademark should be able to get a trademark because um, they either weren't immoral or scandalous or disparaging trademarks. Um, and so it, they, the Supreme Court found in favor of the trademarkee, if you will, in, in context of the First Amendment.
Interesting. Interesting. Okay. So All the right. federal circuit felt like the same thing should apply to uh, Steve Elster and he should, he should be able to get his trademark too. If the freedom, you know, freedom of speech overrides the Lanham Act, then of course Steve Elster should be able to get it. Okay. And, um, and did he? Well, so now it's currently up for appeal. And I think it was the day after we recorded this that the Supreme Court agreed to hear the case. And so that's why this is coming up in the news now. So this is going to go to the Supreme Court. Uh, I am not going to <laughs> try and guess what the, the Supreme Court is going to do. But the general consensus on kind of in the news, if you will, is that the Supreme Court is likely to limit the, the restrictions of the First Amendment on trademarks. Gotcha. Um, okay. And likely going to cut back on the direction that they were going with these prior two cases. Katanji Brown Jackson, for, for example, said trademark is not an is not about expression. Trademark is not about the First Amendment and your people's ability to speak. Justice Clarence Thomas um, asked that because Elster remained free to make his shirts or mugs or whatever he wants to make without the registration, what speech precisely is being burdened? Justice Sotomayor said, you're not talking about uh, stopping the speech. So you've got a wide breadth of different viewpoints on the Supreme Court, basically saying that this isn't a case about speech because this um, Elster is free to print his t-shirts and sell them. We're not limiting his speech, but um, trademark, as we talked about last time, is really about source identifiers, who is selling the shirt and not so much about uh, pr protecting the customers from being confused and, and not so much about freedom of speech. Right, right. Okay, so if I understand it correctly, it, it's not so much of what is being said, but the, the trademark really should relate to that of the company selling these t-shirts regardless of what they're selling so that consumers don't get confused. Is yeah, that... exactly, exactly right. And there's a, a specific prohibition in the Lanham Act that prevents you from mentioning a living individual in your trademark without the written consent of that particular person. Um, I actually looked up the Lanham Act to prepare for this, and I saw that um, I, I thought an interesting provision that no one's talking about, but you can't use the deceased, the portrait of a deceased president of the United States during the lifetime of his widow if any, except by the written consent of the widow. And so um, there's, there may be another exception by which, you know, Trump may be, um, <laughs> have another argument under the Lanham Act to prevent the trademark registration. Okay, interesting. All right. Um, so let's, uh, can you, I guess let's, let's move on. Did you want to discuss any more with um, regards to the Supreme Court, or can we move to um, maybe some of the structure and some yeah, of the yeah. so, items? It kind of already introduced this in the in the previous segment, but uh, the structure of the courts is kind of important in in patents, uh, especially. Um, so the federal courts and the state courts generally have the same kind of uh, thirty thousand foot structure. They they have a trial court. You can then appeal to an intermediate court, and then what is typically called the Supreme Court. But each state remains free to define their own structures however they want. Most of them follow kind of the same format as the federal courts. But uh, I don't know if you remember the, the show Law and Order. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yep. when I was, was a kid. Running on I, TV, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
I love that show, but I, I remember they always showed like the Supreme Court of the state of New York. And I always was confused by that because they're doing like a trial in the Supreme Court. I didn't really get it, but New York is like the exception of, of states and they, they completely reversed their, their order of their courts. So the trial court is actually called the Supreme Court in, in New York. And then you appeal to a court of appeal or the an appeals court, and then you appeal to the court of appeals. So the highest court in New York is actually called the court of appeals. But that's just a little bit of a tidbit. But basically the idea is, is that each, each court has, or each structure, state or federal, usually has a trial court where you typically think of like a judge and the jury and, you know, cross-examination and all of that. And then you have an appeal court and then you have a state Supreme Court that can you can then appeal to the federal Supreme Court if you're not already in federal court. Okay. All right. Good. Now, as it relates to, um, you know, intellectual property law, then uh, don't most of these cases go through the federal court system? Yeah. So as we discussed last time, the, uh, the Constitution defines patents and copyrights. So they are exempt from the state court system entirely. So, so if you have any patents in your, in your lawsuit, um, it's very unlikely that it'll be heard in a state court. If you file it in a state court, they'll kind of require you to go to federal court. So um, that actually leads to a lot of forum shopping. Um, okay. People want to find the right court. Uh, to a favorable court for patents. So if you're bringing the case, right, you're the patentee and, and somebody's infringing on your patent and you want to make sure that you get a, a judge that's willing to hear your case. And so for years and years, that's been the Eastern District of Texas. But it's, is, is, is it, um, are they forum shopping because they, they want, let's say, judges with um, specific expertise and experience with IP law? I think that's that's certainly part of it. Um, there's basically two judges that handle about 40% of all the cases in the United States and patents. Um, they're both located in Texas. And, and for a long time, it's been the Eastern District of Texas. There was a case, uh, TC Heartland versus Kraft, that, uh, that basically caused that to change. But the Eastern District of Texas is still the second most popular location for trying cases. I believe the, the new forum is actually Waco, Texas. So it didn't change all that much, but um, this forum shopping is basically trying to find a judge that will um, hear your case favorably as a patentee and, and not just throw the patent out on the first, on the first motion. Okay. All right. Yeah. Cause I knew a lot of cases are, are down in Texas. I haven't had to testify down there yet, but um so that would explain it. All right. Well, uh, anything else with regards to, uh, you know, patent trials and that type of thing? Um, is there an appeals board? Yeah. So when you start the case in the, in the trial court, in federal court, um, the, the defendant can, first thing they can do is file with the PTAB. That's the, the similar to the TTAB that we discussed earlier. It's at the patent office. It's a court at the patent office that was created by the AIA Act or the America Invents Act. Um, I believe it was September 19th, 2012. Uh, I remember that because it was around that time that I actually became licensed to be a patent attorney. It was, I, I did a week before the law changed. So um, I, I think that's right. Somebody will check my memory and let me know if I'm way off, but. 
<laughs> okay. And, and what, and it, do they rule? It's a specific ruling, right? I mean, it's not, it's, it's like, almost like pre-litigation, isn't it? Where they're um, not so much with regards to damages, but it's, it's more on the, the technical aspects of, of the patent, if it's valid or invalid, is that what it is? Yeah. So there's kind of two things, the validity, whether or not you have a patent and that's kind of decided by the, the PTAB and um, they'll try and invalidate your patent. So if you're a defendant, I mean, the best defense you could have is you don't have a patent, uh, whatever I'm doing, it's not violating your patent because your patent's not valid. And, and so immediately it'll kind of stay the D the, the district court hearings and they'll go to the PTAB to try and figure out whether or not you actually have a patent. Right, right. I mean, you yeah. So you'd obviously want to do that first before you get to court, because if it's already, if you don't even have a patent, then the case just drops off. Correct. Right. Now, so, with there, do they do they um, do they do it carte blanche? You know, the whole thing that they would invalidate, or would it just maybe be some of the claims? you know, in there become invalidated? No, they, yeah, that's a really good question. They can do both. Um, and, and frankly, the PTAB has been sort of a controversial court in, in this process because they tend to be more protective of defendants. At least that's the perception that uh, they tend to invalidate an awful lot of patents or claims, as you say. And, and as you said, they can, they can invalidate the whole thing or they can invalidate certain claims, but they also have another function, which is they they sort of define the the claim scope. So you have to, if you're if you're a patentee and you're trying to bring a, an action, a cause of action against someone, you want your claim scope to be as big as possible to make sure that they are infringing. But if you want it to survive the PTAB hearing, you want to make it as narrow as possible because you don't want it to get invalidated by any other prior art. And so it kind of creates this um, pull, if you will, on the patentee to, to carefully navigate how, what is the, what is the boundary of my patent? We talked about that a lot last time too, but uh, the, the patentee is now kind of in a, in a position of having to foresee how this is going to go through the PTAB and then how it's going to go through the district court and, and make sure that, However, the claims are defined, it'll survive the PTAB and also be enforceable in the district court, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And, and you're using the word PTAB, and I, I've heard, uh, you know, the word acronym used a lot as an IPR. Yes. Yeah. Um, IPR is the process. Uh, Interparties review is, okay. is the name. Of, that's um, that's kind of like saying the trial and the PTAB is like saying the trial court. Or the gotcha. district court. Okay. Um, right. Yeah, that's so, really the only difference. And, and yeah. those that, we love acronyms in patent law. <laughs> okay. All right. Anyways, I, I got a question on that though. Is like, let's say somebody does get granted and they've got a valid patent that has been issued, you know, or so they think, and they they go out and you know start manufacturing and selling stuff, um, and how is it that the patent office can issue a patent, but then somebody else could come back and say it's invalid when it was granted? I mean, that's just, it seems odd. Is it because, and also this is the same, well, I don't know. Is it the same branch of government that, I mean, is it related? How closely related is it to the 
um, the office that's granting the patent. And then they turn around, they review the patent, then they would invalidate it. I mean, it just seems a little bit odd to me. You're asking two excellent questions. I mean, uh, both of those are worthy of a whole separate podcast, uh, probably a whole series of podcasts on each one of those. <laughs> okay. um, but yes, the the Patent Trial and Appeals Board is um, is essentially the patent office. And so there's some constitutional questions about whether they can be both the examiner and the judge and jury. Um, there are a lot of questions about how can they, you know, sort of reverse themselves. They said that they had a patent and now they say they don't um, kind of what you were, what you were bringing up. Um, and there are a lot of, there are a lot of people that really think that this America invents act needs to be repealed or changed or amended. In fact, there's a couple senators that are talking about it for precisely these reasons, at least in part. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, we'll save that for the future then. We'll, if we want to dive into that. That's my 30,000 foot assessment, but um, yeah, to be perfectly frank with you, you're asking exactly the right questions. That's where um, we, we probably should discuss that in, in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I've seen it where they've, they've, um, you know, they've reviewed patents and, um, and they would say these specific claims are valid, but the others aren't. So you might have only part of your invention, which is patented, um, you know, which would obviously relate to and have a direct bearing on damages, you know, whether you get it on the, the whole, uh, the whole patent or only on parts thereof, you know, so we can cover that at a different time. Um, so, you know, honestly, this goes to something else that's really important, but, um, we, we tend to think of patents because of their exclusionary rights, the ability to prevent someone from uh, doing something. That's what a patent right is. You can say, you can't build this because I invented it. You, it actually doesn't give you the right to build it yourself. You can tell someone else they can't do it, but you don't actually have the right to do it. But actually, patents can do a lot more than just prevent people from doing things. And that's something that I really wanted to emphasize in this uh, podcast, because we talk about litigation, we talk about all the things that patents, frankly, the fences that patents can build, the, I think the negative parts of patents, the ability to prevent somebody from doing something productive. But they actually do a lot more. They often can help build bridges is the way the analogy I like to use. So you can build bridges by discovering technology and working with competitors or getting venture capital or other support from other people that are interested in the same kinds of topics. And um, there's also a really interesting thing that you can do with patents to reduce your taxes. So there's a, there's a number of different things that patents do besides just the litigation. Uh, and I kind of want to make that point explicitly clear that, you know, there's a lot of interesting things that happen in patent litigation, but it's not the only reason that a person might pursue a patent. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was good. And we're coming to a close here pretty soon of our podcast. And I, um, I think, you know, Beyond the litigation aspect, I think you you had mentioned to me one time something about a Dutch sandwich. <laughs> Are you feeling hungry? Yeah, yeah, it's going on lunchtime. Yeah, it's time to go to lunch. Um, yeah, there's a complex corporate tax avoidance strategy called the double Irish Dutch sandwich. And this is kind of what I was talking about. It's kind of on the fringe. Uh, some, some people think it's it should be illegal. Some, it kind of maybe should be, I don't know, but it enables 
a company to dramatically reduce their taxes by paying for the the licensing fees to different countries that they they own all the companies in all the different countries and the money will travel all around the world several times usually ireland uh why it's called a double irish um it gets it gets the money several times in order to avoid tax and uh if you if you get a chance uh we should we should do an episode on the double irish dutch sandwich but if you get a chance to google that and maybe look into it a little bit i think you'll find it very interesting yeah yeah all right well then maybe we'll do that on our uh, future episode so anyways um this has been brad and paul again with another episode of trace on the case um, please feel free to contact us with any questions or um, anything that uh, you might want to hear a podcast of in the future. Um, and Brad, how do they get a hold of you again? Uh, yeah, my email is bjubber. So that's B as in Brad and then jubber, J U B B E R, at Taylor English, T A Y L O R English, just like the language we're speaking, E N G L I S H com. Yep. Okay. Sounds good. And uh, I think it's mentioned in the outro, but again, this is Paul Rodrigues with Trace Forensic Experts, and it would just be paul at traceforensic.com. Looking forward to talking to everybody next week. Take care, Brad. Thanks for having me, Paul. You bet. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of Trace on the Case. If you've enjoyed the show, there are many more on the way, and we encourage you to subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That's the number one way to help the show. To learn more about myself, Deb, and Trace as an organization, visit traceforensic.com. And thank you again for joining us. We're very excited to talk with you again next week. So bring a friend.